when Mark relates this very basically. This is where we are, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Now, as Mark relates what happened here, uh, it's, he's really basic in it. Uh, he says Jesus came from his home, came from Nazareth in Galilee. He came down to the River Jordan, uh, and John had been baptizing there. Just preceding this account of Jesus' baptism, we learn about the nature of this baptism that John was doing. Verse 5, Mark tells us, the people throughout Judea, from Judea, from Jerusalem, they were going out to him, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John tells those people that were gathering to him, coming to confess and repent, he says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew relates, John relates, he said, and with fire, that's the bit I like, uh, <laughs> with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John the Baptist here, he's got a very conscious mission. He knows what he's doing. He knew that he had been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, the one more powerful than he. I think it's interesting that John knows his own significance. Uh, he's humble. Later, we, we see him saying, he must increase, I must decrease. But he is no wilting flower. This is John the Baptist. Uh, my friend Dave Abels is he's a pastor. He was a pastor of Holy Trinity in Boise. He was fond of using John the Baptist as a verb. I'm going to go John the Baptist on this. And you can say that because uh, John knows that he has power. He's been given a power to say, one who is mightier than I, that comes with an acknowledgement that one is mighty. Significant, God-empowered. So even, even what he wears and what he eats, camel's hair, he's wearing, he's eating locusts and honey, those are signs of prophetic office. They're signs he's stepped into something that he knows he's into. He stepped into the same mold as Elijah, the prophet. He stands and speaks as Elijah stood and spoke with authority from God. So fulfilling the, the prophecy that came through Malachi, that God would send Elijah, this is Malachi, send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. John knew that his job was to challenge the people of God to repent of collective rebellion, national rebellion, and to provide the means, a way, a way to express that penitence, a way to individually step into it. So when a call goes out, we, we need to change what we're doing. We need to change direction. There has to be some way that you indicate, I'm on board with that. Baptism becomes that. So John was clearly announcing his baptizing was a preparatory work. He was preparing the way. And this baptism 
allowed the people a way to express a desire for change. But the enabling power to change, this is, John's baptism is external. The power to change, when God would replace the hearts of stone with living hearts, with his law written on the heart, that would come with the Messiah's baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. One who is mightier than I comes after. He does a work that is beyond what I am doing. So the power to live a renewed life. John cannot grant the power to give, uh, for a renewed life. That has not been given to him. That comes by Jesus. So when Jesus walks from his home in Galilee to the wilderness around the Jordan River to be baptized, we know that Jesus isn't coming to repent of his own sins. This is a larger act than that. This is an act of ultimate signification. It's signing, it's pointing to something ultimate. Jesus enters the waters. He places himself in the hands of John the Baptist, literally rests himself in John's hands. And he's doing this as a representative of the Jews, but also of all mankind. He's, he, comes to, he, come, he enters this baptism as the second Adam. So Jesus undergoes a baptism of repentance. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people of God. That's a profound moment. Profound moment. For 30 years, Jesus had gone about the normal course of life in Galilee. Learned to trade. He'd seen the birth of his siblings. He struggled through relative poverty. Very likely, times of hunger. There are a couple of famines that hit Israel during his upbringing. He saw the death of a parent, Joseph, at some point. We don't know. But it's in this act that everything changes. It's here at the Jordan River. Jesus from Nazareth, the carpenter guy from Nazareth, steps into his long foretold role of Messiah. So yes, he was always fully God, always fully man. But he doesn't begin to enact his role as Messiah. He doesn't begin to enact his role, live into his role of Christ until this act of acceptance. He is accepting this mission. And it becomes a moment of announcement. It becomes a moment of epiphany. So we'll say this again. It's in his identity as the carpenter of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, that Jesus walks the road from Nazareth to the Jordan River. But it's as Messiah. It's as the Christ of God, not just the son of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, that he's washed. And in in this washing, he is communicating. He's communicating on behalf of Israel. He's communicating on behalf of all mankind. An admission. It's the same admission that all of those people that went to the Jordan were admitting. 
It's that the people have sinned and need washing. But when he is washed, the signification goes up. It's not just because it's not his sins to repent of. It's as if he says, standing as the eldest brother of the family. What, what family? Of the whole human family. Father, we have sinned. Father, we have rebelled. We have turned away. Yes, Israel has turned away. But we, the human family, have turned away. And today, we turn from that. We repent from that. So look on us now with favor. That's his plea. That's what this baptism is communicating. It is an intercessory act. An intercessory act means it, it is on behalf of others. So it's a representative plea for those who cannot or they will not make the plea for themselves. So as Messiah, Jesus enacts the plea. As an intercession, you can think of as an intercession on behalf of Israel, this is the first high priestly act. This is, he will function as the high priest of Israel and mankind from here forward. This is the first of those acts. It's as representative of the human family. It's his first solemn declaration as the second Adam. We need mercy. So how it's fitting, so, so fitting that functioning as the second Adam, repentance is the first act. Since the first Adam broke everything. See what happens. The, the Lord, Father in heaven, manifests the significance of this moment. He reveals what's occurring. So God splits open the heavens. Can you imagine what this, what would this have looked like? Heavens rent open. Glory comes down. And in a visible form, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the scriptures tell us, like a dove. The Holy Spirit did not come as a dove. It wasn't dove on Jesus, perching. There was something suggestive about the way the Spirit descended that was like a dove. If you've seen a dove fly, I, I think it probably was that sort of indication Doves fly in a unique way. This descent rests on Jesus, the Christ. And here the Father then speaks and communicates the same message that the Son had just communicated. The Father echoes and he affirms this representative action of baptism. He says, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So he is saying, yes, yes, you are the Christ, the beloved. Yes, I will indeed give favor to my people because of you. I will indeed give all that I have promised to the line of David and the house of David. I will be faithful to all my promises. Yes, I will have favor on the house of Israel, and on the human family. I will. I accept this representative act of repentance. And finally then, he sets Jesus on the messianic course. As Jesus comes from the baptism, 
The Spirit takes him out into the wilderness for preparation. Jesus always had the Holy Spirit. He was always at one with the Father by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is bound up in his very nature. That's part of who he is. This descending is anointing. It's anointing for a specific task. It's a visible form of affirmation. So it's caught up with what is happening at the river, with what Jesus is indicating as he goes in. It's a visible form of affirmation that is his commissioning to begin the ministry of reconciling the world to God. Yes, you are my son, the beloved. I'm pleased with you. Let's go. God does something wonderful here. He, he always does wonderful things. He echoes his own words. You know, when we read the scriptures, this is an argument for getting yourself really soaked in the scriptures. We find he's constantly echoing his own words. Uh, he's showing that this thing that's happening here, I planned and I set in motion a thousand years before. Or I planned and set this thing in motion 2,500 years before. And now, to help you see that I knew what I was doing all along, I'm going to use the same words that I used back then. And he does this here. He uses the words that he had said in Isaiah 42 through Isaiah. Here is my servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. My son, the beloved, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So, speaking from the heavens at this baptism, the father's echoing his words of long ago and he's gesturing back to the promise for Jesus' sake and for the sake of all those who hear. I am completing the promise that I initiated here. This is my son, whom I love. With you I'm pleased. And then he does what he said he would do. He puts his spirit on him so that he may do the work of bringing justice to the nations. The redemptive task that he's been set. If you think back to the anointing of King David, right? we're in Samuel there. Uh, King David was anointed by Samuel when David was with the sheep, right? He was out with the sheep. Just, he was a boy. When Samuel came to Jesse's family and he said, bring me the sons. One of your sons is going to be the king. And this was that moment where the Lord speaks to Samuel. Don't look on the outside. God sees the heart. The sons pass. And the seventh son, David, is a little late in coming. And he knows this is the one. From that we see... That's just an indication. Anointing is a visible sign. It's the seal of a promise. God gave David this promise that he would in time bring him to rule over Israel. It would come. Note it took a long time. After David was anointed, he was embattled. He was chased by Saul for years. We don't know exactly how long it was, probably around 10 years, 8 to 10 years, after his anointing, before he began to rule. 
here at the river, the Father seals the rule of Jesus, the Christ. He anoints him as the everlasting Christ. But just as it took David years before he received rule, Jesus had a long road ahead of him after this anointing. This anointing by the Spirit was the empowering for that long, hard road that took him, we know, through the valley of the shadow of death and took him to the cross. At the baptism, Jesus is anointed to die. As much as he's anointed to rule, he's anointed to die. You will be the lamb. You are my son. You are the second Adam. You are the lamb. Now, let, let's put ourselves there. Just also, I commend a great activity when you're reading the scripture. Put yourself there. Consider the experience of the crowd there. They didn't know Jesus from any other guy in that crowd. Uh, he, he hadn't been hanging out with John's disciples. Unless they'd come from Nazareth and the villages around Nazareth, they'd never heard of him. Some had come that very day. They'd been baptized. Others said they'd been baptized, they'd gone back home, and then they decided to come be John's disciples. And they watched as person after person went into the river and came out dripping the, the robe, clinging closely. You've seen somebody immersed. Now imagine their puzzlement when this poor country fella that nobody knows, he enters the water and he begins to talk with John. And there's clearly something more going on here than with the others. They're having a conversation. The crowd, you know, they, they move closer. They're trying to, what, what's going on? Who is this guy? Some, John must know this bumpkin from you know, the, the days in the wilderness. John then consents to whatever, uh, and, and the poor man goes under. And then as he emerges and the water's pouring from his head, then this thing happens. Light explodes brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun. We know that it's bright. It's glory from the heavens. So it eclipses the sun. It dims the sun. And then this voice echoes, declaring this poor weathered guy is the beloved son of God. And then as, as the voice is thundering, this thing, spot of brilliance, settles on the man. I think they stood astonished and unspeaking. Just, there's nothing to be said. And then as Jesus emerges from the water, they fall back. They've never, no one has ever seen anything like this. There's no analogy they have to go on. What is this? And so they fall by, they part like peasants before a king. It's the only appropriate response. And so the Messiah, the promised one, has been declared. He had been anointed. And so in a real sense... It's at this moment that Jesus becomes 
the Messiah with the task the Messiah has. Always fully God, always fully man, now anointed for the messianic task. And the Spirit leads him to the desert. Uh, we have many similarities to these people at the, at the river there. Receiving epiphany. Receiving knowledge of the king. Because he stirred in us, because his spirit stirred in us, we went to the river. We went to repent. But because we're on the other side of Jesus' suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, there's something else at work in us. When, and when we're baptized, we are not receiving what the New Testament calls John's baptism. The passage from Acts indicated that. There was a group who only received John's, bab John's baptism. And they had not received the Holy Spirit. That is possible. When we're baptized, Paul explains in Romans 6, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, like him, might walk in newness of life. That's very clear. Baptism is a visible sign that God has joined himself to us. By the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we're joined to the life of Jesus. Water goes on top of the head. Immersion absolutely communicates this much more effectively. When we're baptized in a building, we, we don't have that luxury. Baptism, when water goes on top of the head, it's a sign of going under the water. It's a sign of going under the water of the second death. We too die. The judgment, the second death is the judgment and the wrath that he received for us. So we receive that sign that we're with him as he judges, our, as he judges sin. He received it for us. And then rising from it through, we rise from it through the life of Jesus as he passed through the second death. So it's the sign of newness of life. It's the sign of new birth into the family of God. It's our adoption ceremony. And so, since we bring ourselves and we walk down to the river, so to speak, we submit ourselves and we submit our children to receive the life of Jesus freely offered. By that, we become participants in his life. We become participants in his whole life. And that's not always great to think about. Because that includes participating in his suffering as well as his conquering. 
if we are joined to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, the path that he walked is our path. So it means enduring the hostility of the world towards him. And also overcoming it by our faith and the word of testimony. By proclaiming, yes, indeed, we do belong to him. It means, too, that he walks with us through the hard things. He walks with us through the miseries. He walks with us through the the tears. He walks through the confusions. When you experience times of confusion, you're not... You're not experiencing those alone. Jesus has joined himself to your confusion. He's joined himself to your misery. And so he is also with us through the victories and our rejoicing. And he guides us through those valleys. So our connection to Jesus includes the events of the gospel today the passage that we've read today. We're joined to him in that. So we're not merely, this is because we're on the other side of the cross, we're not merely standing at the riverside. We are in him as he enters the water. We're not just receiving knowledge externally, seeing the events. We've been joined to Jesus as he receives his anointing and he receives his mission. His mission is now our mission. He has made it so. So brothers and sisters, and I say that pointedly, brothers and sisters, you also who've been joined to the Lord by the Spirit, by which we become brothers and sisters. We speak of and we declare the cleansing work of God and the forgiveness of sins because that's what Jesus declares. That's why we speak of it. That's what his message is. He forgives. We declare that he forgives. We're full participants in his work because our lives are joined to his. If we walk in newness of life, Christ in us, the hope of glory, uh, then his life in us constrains us, guides, directs, gives the significance and the meaning to our lives. We have a new nature, and that new nature is moving us towards God's fulfilled design in us. That's the road we are on. If you have been given the Holy Spirit, this is your road. The renewal of God's design in you. Jesus renewed, he, as the second Adam, he renewed humankind. That's part of our story now. His Spirit in us guides us to renewal here, inwardly. We're being renewed day by day. If that meant a cross for him, it's going to mean some uncomfortable times for us. To reshape humanity meant death. It meant the cross. For the reshaping of our design, true humanity in us, it's going to mean crosses in our lives. 
And he's going to do it. He's going to sustain us through it. We're being shaped like the second Adam, not like the first one. Praise the Lord. And that's how we can love sacrificially. That's how we can love what is unlovable, what's nasty. It's how we can look on our own grossness with gratitude that it's being changed. Those are shocking realizations, aren't they? When you, you come to grips with something in you that you know absolutely shouldn't be there, and yet at the same time you know God is dealing with that. He is healing it. He is healing it. This is good news. You are being healed. And we may live bit by bit so that sin has no dominion over us. That's what the second Adam has given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the elder brother, the Christ who has called us into life with you. And we ask that you would do the work of healing and cleansing. As he was washed for us, would you wash us and wash us and wash us? Thank you that uh, you have taken the eternal consequence of our rebellion in Christ. We want the cleansing of our character. Do it. For your son's sake. Amen.